Hello everybody, Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. Delighted to have you with me on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Beautiful if you're on the West Coast like myself. If you're in the East or Midwest, chin up, you'll get through the snowstorm. I'm, I'm assuring you of that. But thanks again for joining me on this sports podcast special show today. We're going to talk tennis with associate editor at Tennis Magazine, Nina Pantic. Nina is a professional in the tennis sports industry. She's an editor at Baseline. She has an interesting backstory. Born in Serbia, played college tennis at both UCLA and Missouri. A lot to discuss with her, how she got into playing tennis, what it was like traveling a lot as a youngster, and developing her career in the tennis world. We'll also talk about Indian Wells 2018, some of the best storylines going around in tennis right now, what she thinks of Serena Williams' comeback, all that and more. It's Nina Pantic on the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect, special guest for today's episode to talk about tennis. Indian Wells taking place right now in Palm Desert, Palm Springs, California. It's associate editor at the tennis mag at Tennis Magazine and editor at Baseline, Nina Pantic, former college tennis player herself. Nina, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I, I always like to talk to guests about their stories and getting involved in sports. Um, and I don't know how this this show became kind of a launching pad for a lot of Missouri Tigers, but I seem to have a lot of the alumni for that school on this show. But Nina, be that as it may. You have one of the more interesting backgrounds in uh, in all of sports of the people that I've talked to. Uh, actually, being born in Belgrade, Serbia, traveling a lot and getting involved in tennis at a at a very young age. I'll start with that. I don't know many people. I really don't know anyone born in Serbia. How was how are your ties to that country? Because I know that it is a tennis hotbed. It just makes perfect sense that I'm talking to somebody in the tennis world that was born in Serbia. What was, what was if you have any memories that like in, in your ties, if you could, to that country? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a unique situation. I was born there, um, but I only lived there for about two years. I left when I was really small. So other than the fact that my parents are, are totally Serbian and they speak Serbian and I speak it, um, I can't really connect myself to players like Novak Djokovic and Ivanovic, but I grew up obsessed with Monica Seles. Okay. Also, from there, and then she became an American. So I feel like I was more like that in the sense that we got our citizenship when I was about eighteen. It took a while, but I'd say I'm I'm definitely more American than anything now. But the Serbian thing was it is a big part of my life because you know I speak it and I relate to it, and you know I understand the Eastern mentality a bit more than, than maybe some players or some notably Americans would. Right, and and if if I have this correct, your parents were professional volleyball players. You played tennis at a yeah, very, I mean yeah. Yeah, they. I think it's different in Europe. I think they were more. I mean, what would you call definitely really, really great uh, volleyball players. But I wouldn't say that they were, um, you know, like American volleyball in the sense they were obviously like excellent and played on, club, on clubs all over Europe or anything like that. But I never played volleyball. Um, didn't even consider it. And my dad picked up tennis when he was in his 30s, which is when he had me. So he was obsessed with it, and I started playing when I was about three or four. Um, actually in Africa, which is where you were for a few years, not little. Right, because you spent time in Zimbabwe, right? I mean, that had to be, I, I can't even imagine the differences in culture there, but to, I mean, that's even shocking to me to learn tennis. People from Serbia learning tennis in Africa isn't exactly how it's drawn up, so to say. 
Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of insane. Um, we moved there when I was about three or four, and I went to preschool in Zimbabwe and played tennis, you know, on little local courts covered in in sand. And then it was it was um, the photos are hilarious, that's for sure. <laughs> and then I I wouldn't say I got serious about it until I moved to Canada. So it it, it definitely took a little while to get to get going. Well, I always wonder, because kids, especially with athletic backgrounds, athletic families, play a lot of different sports, but what was it for you that made tennis stick, that wasn't just a sport to play with your friends, that you really enjoyed it, that you wanted to, at a young age, consider taking it seriously? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely the parents, because my, my dad was so into it, and he really, he really picked up a passion for it so intensely that it was just something we did. And my brother, older brother as well, played, so it was a family thing. Um, I was so little, so you don't really think about it. I did tons of other sports, and I was I was, I was very active, running and gymnastics and all kinds of stuff. But tennis was the only thing that I did consistently, and I think it's probably because my dad was my coach, and it was a family event, and tournaments are more fun when you have everyone kind of involved. And from an individual sports standpoint, it's one of the more disciplined sports. I mean, I don't think people outside the tennis world realize how much practice it takes to get good even if you have natural ability you have to be playing you have to be playing year-round and are you surprised that you were able to stick with it did you just love it from the beginning did you have ups and downs or was there just a steady love throughout i mean because i started so young i was so thrilled by it all and i'm so happy to be playing a lot of times i was playing against older players and that was kind of a challenge and really exciting i mean when you're so little you don't really think um that it's hard or that it's, that it's boring or that it's repetitive. You're kind of just enjoying yourself. And I, mean, I went to school and would play in the afternoon or in the morning. Like it, was, it was very casual for a while. Um, and then when I came to Florida at the age of like 11, then it got really serious. And I think that's when things changed from, oh, this is a fun family event to do my brother to this is something I'm trying to do for a living. Wow. Okay. Um, when exactly, and I like to also ask this question to people that played sports at an elite level, but did you have a moment where you realized I'm pretty good at this? Like it's not just something I'm trying to do. Like I'm better than most people in my age group. Um, probably around twelve or thirteen when I made the move to the U.S. and was still doing really well because I, I don't think the level is quite the same in Vancouver Island, um, in Canada than it is in Florida or, or a place like California or anywhere in the U.S. Really. So I think I think about that age. And then we made the switch to homeschooling, and tennis became like everything. It's kind of when you when you invest into it, and you're playing nationals, and you're playing maybe ITF tournaments and things like that, and things start to really pick up. I'd say about you know teenage, like right when I became a teenager, like twelve, thirteen. Okay, and just a little aside here, Nina, I wanted to ask you, someone also working in tennis. Why do you think culturally? I mean, do you think it, it makes that much of a difference to where, and we've seen it for generations. It's the homeschool, it's the move to Florida, um, you know, I guess groundwork of these elite level players from America. A lot of them, the Andy Roddicks, even back to the Agassiz and, and what have you, they left their homes at a young age to go to academies. It's a big commitment for anybody to make, let alone a 12, 13-year-old. But why do you think that model has worked and do you think we're going to continually see that going forward? It's hard to tell what, what works and what doesn't because even I became a college player, you know, and I'm no, I'm no Andy Roddick, but... I think each each player is different, each family is different, but the, the level, like when you decide to dedicate your life to the sport, like that has, I think that's kind of a thing between all of these these players, young players. They make the decision, you know, the parents help them when they're little, and they decide to invest 
and something like homeschooling moving to an academy is, is a huge move. When you're young, you don't really think of it. You're more excited for something that's, you know, what's next, something that's changing. Oh, I don't think of school anymore. Like, oh, it's amazing. I get to go and play tennis, hang out with my friends, and, and play tournaments and travel. You're not, you're not, you know, you're not thinking this is a huge choice I've just made. It, it, it depends on the age you are, I think, uh, and it depends, depends how good you are. Absolutely. Nina Pantic, Money Mitch Effect. She is the associate editor at Tennis Magazine, editor at Baseline as well. Nina, you had a, a great high school career. Uh, I believe you were ranked number four in, all, in, your, in the entire country. Uh, and then go to UCLA, which, if I have this right, you were you were in Florida for about seven years before you went to college, so you actually had to, the chance to set up some roots for a little bit? Yeah, Florida is probably what I would consider home at this point. I've been there, you know, um, I guess 11 or 12 to, to 18, and then my parents are still there, the same house we had when I was a teenager. So Florida is definitely a big a big part of my life and uh, a big part of my tennis life for sure. And I chose UCLA, which is a bit aggressive, but I really wanted. I mean, I think it's just something you get used to. You get you get used to going to far places and then traveling. And I was like, California is the place to be. Right. I don't think you had the traditional uh, college freshman homesickness like you had been used to moving and <laughs> and living away from what yeah. was considered home. Yeah, I was. I was. I think I was pretty comfortable right away with um, living living at UCLA. Now, in the current, I have to bring this up because in the current climate of all of NCAA sports, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, misunderstandings would be the way I describe it between what's exactly allowed and what's going on. There's a lot of college basketball scandals. You had quite the experience as well uh, at UCLA and then at Missouri. Uh, starting with the fact that there was a little bit of an eligibility issue because you won an ITF event in 2006. Walk me through that for, for people out there that don't know the whole story, how your eligibility oh, yeah. was in question. Oh, yeah. Um, so it wasn't the fact that I won that pro circuit tournament. It wasn't that 10000 because I was playing as an amateur uh, everywhere I went, but I played in like a prize money tournament here and there. And then I initially wanted to go to FIU, which was local, kind of in near Florida. Mm-hmm. And that was to try and help me you know, attend a school, but also try and go pro at the same time. This was like when I was maybe 17. It was, a, it was the first idea. And then we thought it would be better to just admit, like, okay, I played prize money tournament. I mean, I, it wasn't a significant amount of money, uh, but just because we talked about it openly, it became a big thing. And then it ended up being at UCLA, in which I committed to a full year or so later. Um, it was, I think, eight or six or six or eight dual matches. But I played the whole fall season. It's weird because the, the rules change so much. I think things have changed a lot. Because I was 2008, I think things have changed a lot. I think you can accept a certain amount of money. I think you're allowed to do a lot more than you could then, which is frustrating now for sure. But back then, you know, everyone kind of handled it really well, and I thought it wasn't, it wasn't a huge problem, luckily. <laughs> yeah, and you ended up having <laughs> a good career at UCLA. It's also what piqued your, your interest, right, in tennis journalism. And that's where you started writing, started covering uh, tennis and sports in a print format? Yeah, I started uh, writing a blog-style story about um, the tennis team. That was actually a lot of fun. And I didn't really think about journalism as a serious option until, I think, my senior year. I I was an English major, but it didn't really cross my mind as as tennis journalism for for a long time. Even though I was doing that blog and, and having fun with it, I don't think that really crossed my mind as a serious career for a while. You know, it's interesting, too. I find that a lot with people that get started in, in sports, especially athletes, is they're just, 
they find something enjoyable. They don't consider it a career right away, and then it just piques their interest. And in your case, not only did it pique your interest, but when you were looking at potentially transferring and, and getting a you know playing getting a master's and then playing again, you thought, hey, wait, I'm good at this journalism thing, and it just made sense that a school like Mizzou was there for you to go and, and play tennis. Yeah, um, I would have graduated UCLA a little bit early, and then the goal was to try and cram in a grad degree um, with some kind of scholarship, and I was looking at a few options, but some of the programs were longer than others, and Missouri, the one thing that was appealing was that they give their journalism students hands-on experience. You get bylines, you get clips, you get to actually produce real news versus just practicing. And then the the program was pretty new, and they, they, they had a new team coach, and you know I kind of vibe with them, and i never really been to Missouri. I didn't know what to expect. But when you're thinking of going there for a year, you don't really worry about, you know, where am I going? What am I doing with my life? It was kind of a, a logical grad school journalism degree choice, more so than tennis. So not only did you live in, I think, three different continents, but you've hit basically every region of America, with Missouri being the third Yeah. One. Yeah, yeah. And Missouri was awesome. It was one of the best. I think I was there for two years in the end. It was one of the best two years of my life, easily. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar. I'm familiar. I went to school in St. Louis, <laughs> so I've been. I made a couple of trips to Columbia back in the day life was as, so, as well. <laughs> life was so affordable. Yeah, life was affordable. Everything was easy. Everything was spacious. It was a good time. Everything was spacious, right, except the airport. Spacious. Well, yeah, that, that, that could. Uh, There's but, <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting about that too is your story basically, I'd say the phrase outsmart the NCAA, like a lot of people have issues, but you use the system to your advantage to get an extra year of eligibility yeah. to play tennis while getting a master's degree. Yeah, I didn't know that was an option. Um, one of my closest friends in college uh, used to like the exact same thing, you know, and I didn't know that was even an option. And kind of she, she did it first, and then I think a few other players have done it, of course, probably since then, for sure. But I didn't even think that was something you could do. And then when I figured it all out, and obviously there's advisors at UCLA, and they, their biggest goal is they want you to graduate. They don't really care how or when or why, but they want you to graduate. So everyone was really supportive, even my coaches um, at UCLA. Everyone was, was a big um big supporter for this whole process, and it was actually pretty seamless. As long as you get the credits in, you graduate, you can... Use another year, you can become a grad assistant, which I only played at Mizzou for, I think, like five months, and then I was a grad assistant, and that was a blast as well. Wow. Nina Pantic, Money Mitch Effect. As we continue along here, were you, when you finished up at Missouri, did you know right then and there, or I guess while you were finishing up at Missouri, that it was going to be kind of hard to make a career as a pro, that it was going to go, you were going to go into journalism professionally? Did you have pro aspirations still? I, I think a lot of people understand how tough it is to make it at that pro level, but was that in your mind at all? No. Uh, I tried to do the pro thing at 15, 16, and maybe a little bit at 17, and then once I chose college, I, in my head, I decided that I wasn't ever going to try and play pro again. I played a few pro tournaments. They were complete, and it didn't go well at all during college. Um, and then by the time I got to Missouri, it's just been so much time, and I think that my level dropped significantly. I wasn't happy with where I was playing, but when I graduated, I mean, there was no there was no chance I was going to be able to show on at all at that point. Okay. I, yeah. I think things are different now, though. I think, I think things are like, I mean, not that it was that long ago, but at the time it felt like if you don't make it at 16, like you're doomed. Well, now I think players are really 
taking time and using college as a stepping stone. Well, at the time, I didn't think of that way, maybe because I'm from Serbia, maybe because I wasn't raised in an American household, but we didn't think of, of college as a stepping stone at all, and, that, and now things feel a little bit different than that. Right, the game has changed, I think, in just in the last five, six years with more college tennis players having some success on the pro tour. It's still pretty top-heavy by players that didn't go to college and a lot of players that turned pro early, but I would say, yeah, you're right, in, in the last five to six years, it's it's changed a little bit. It's still hard to have that top-end success, though, if you don't turn pro yeah. early. Yeah, it's, 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 and especially women versus men. I think the men, men have a little bit more leeway when it comes to turning pro later, but the women are still a little bit younger, but I mean, it's, it's all, it's all good. I think it all worked out. When, yeah, I'd say so too. When you, when you graduated from getting your master's at Missouri, was your first job at the Columbia Missourian in, as a sports editor? Was uh, that the first official job? So, uh, being a sports editor was actually part of the grad school, but like I said, they, they kind of try and employ you and have you do real journalism when you're in the program. So I was there for, for a year and a half, um, and then I, I, I did a little bit of newspaper writing, I did a little bit of newspaper design, I did a little bit of sports editing. I think I was covering football, though, which is a strange choice. But um, And then, because I was on the tennis team for a little while, so I think I, I, I tried to like do other sports for a little while, but that's actually part of the program. It's considered a job, for sure, but it's not, you know, I didn't apply for the job and get it. It was part of uh, part of the grad school. Okay. I would... I would, we'd have to go back and look at some of those football stories. I think that'd be, <laughs> I think that'd be good. Uh, so then, the the first big break, so to speak, would be being an associate editor at uh, at Tennis Magazine back where you're still currently doing work with. But is that January 2014? If I have the timeline right, was that the first break? Like yeah. this is a legit career now that I can make in tennis. Yeah, it, it that's one of the most insane crazier parts of the story is I was in a design class for magazine magazine editing and design in grad in grad school and they make you as part of the grad component interview reach out and interview a real you know a real magazine editor somewhere. And it was actually for design, even though design is nowhere near my forte. But it was you know one of those one of those classes you too and um Tennis magazine was the only one to respond to my emails just asking for an interview. And um, my boss now, Scott, happened to say, okay, I can talk to you on Thursday at 2. And had I not done it, he was like, I would have just thrown out the email and never cared again. And then we talked for about an hour, and, and he, I asked him, hey, you know, can you take my resume? Are you hiring at some point? Like, I'm going to be done in January. And he ended up letting me freelance a little bit, do a few stories about college and, and you know, recruiting and all that. And then I went out to the U.S. Open, and he met him, and he offered me a job for January. It was completely... <laughs> Wow. I wouldn't say by chance. I think it was meant to be because my background really worked well for him, but it was it was one of the funnier. And I saw that interview on tape was actually hilarious. That story is more or less similar to a lot of people that I've talked to, that if you just put yourself in the right position, and in your case especially, learn other skills. Because you said design wasn't your forte, but if you just pick up yeah. other skills, you never know who you're going to come in contact with and what doors you might open. I don't know if it would have crossed my mind to just shoot out emails to, you know, the, the first email address you see in Tennis Magazine's, you know, opening page. It doesn't seem like something that you should be doing, but it was just, why not? I feel like that's the case too, right? Like working in tennis or in sports in general, there's no there's no real blueprint for just do this, this, and this, and then you're going to be getting a job. You kind of have to just yeah. find your own path and do things that, you know, take chances. Yeah, yeah, I, it definitely. It's, 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 you never know what's going to happen, so there's no reason not to try. I mean, Hetty, you can go to the email, 
okay, I probably would have tried again at some point. So now working at now working at tennis magazine tennis dot com we're kind of all under the same umbrella, uh, which by the way I do have to bring this up tennis dot com did the top fifty players of the open era which was a great list great well done but very testy, on uh, online a lot of a lot of debates started over that list. I mean you got to cause a little bit of, a little bit of drama at some point it's it's hard we knew that I think we knew the the, the biggest one was Nadal was the number three yeah. I think that one was. We knew that one was going to cause a lot of stir because his fans are really, really, really passionate. Yeah. But I mean, you have to put someone. You can't just say, "Oh, they're all number one." They're all, you know. It, it was, it was. That was a lot of fun, and it's just something you have to stick to your guns and just go for it. At Tennis Channel, we feature the countdown throughout our shows, and the women's list, it was funny because both women and men, you knew Serena Roger were going to be number one, and there was no real drama there. Mm -hmm. The women's list went about as expected, but that men's list, starting at, I think, 11 or 12, there got to be some debates, and then we saw, like you mentioned, Nadal at three, and we're like, oh, here comes the Nadal fan social media backlash. It was all in good fun, but yeah, debates are interesting, especially in the tennis world. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a good debate. I think it's a lot of fun, and I, I, I think that was going to happen no matter what we did. Now, the other stuff that you get to write and, and some of the columns that I've read of yours, you cover a wide range of not just different topics but different types of pieces. I've seen the, the traditional news breaking of uh, recapping storylines to more think pieces and, and getting people informed how to, what you need to know, those types of columns, and then some real fun pieces uh, that experience the social side of things as well. Do you have a preference? Do you, do you like having the balance of writing different types of columns, or do you wish you could do a little bit more of, of a certain genre? Yeah, my favorite thing is when you actually sit down with one of the players or, or whoever you're interviewing one-on-one, and you get to legitimately speak with them versus the awkward, large press conferences where everyone's kind of an autopilot. So any, any feature that goes a little bit more in-depth, I prefer those. But then the fun, you know, baseline, uh, which is baseline.tennis.com, is, is a little bit more of the fun, silly stuff, which I think people enjoy. I wouldn't say it's clickbait exactly, but it's more it's more things that people, you know, fast-paced, short. You're trying to get people interested in the sport, which is also a challenge. And stuff. You're trying to make tennis appear as, you know, like a really fast-paced, celebrity kind of juicy which it is, but you know, it, it, it's a combination of things. But features are a lot of fun, and so it's so based on because you get a lot of attention, you get a lot of interest, you get a lot of laughs. Right. Anytime you get to know or get to understand behind the, the the wall that they built up, what a tennis player is like, I think that's pretty cool. And I also think you know, as as somebody that played sports, I find this parallel too. You can disagree with me if you like, but. It just seems like somebody in that athletics, like playing a sport at a high level like you did, you're able to understand the journalistic, the reporter-type mentality of, I have a deadline, I have to do this. It just seems like it can be more seamless than than other careers. Yeah, I think I think it depends, you know, when you're, when you're on, it's not so much deadline, it's more you're trying to achieve a certain kind of story, you're trying to get a certain kind of angle versus just a match report, you know, the score and what happened. And, and that's the most frustrating part is just trying to get the, not only the access, but the right the right conversation. Um, and then each tournament varies. You never know what kind of situation you're going to have, how casual, how serious. Or, you know, you're not going to sit down with Roger Federer every day. So it just, it just depends. That <laughs> yeah. depends on the day. It depends on the tournament. It depends on the mood of the player. It depends on the mood of the media, you know, representatives. It's all kind of a, 
a free-for-all. Right, getting an interview post-match or scheduling something post-match, and then they lose and they're they're in a bad mood or they just yeah. don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of moments in press where they, yeah, they're not in a good mood. They just want to go home. Like, you understand. You understand they've been playing tennis all day and they, they're not in a mood. It makes perfect sense, honestly. I'm trying to remember. I think it was three years ago at Indian Wells when Djokovic went three sets he was going to do a tennis channel interview and uh, I think it was like Frantangelo it took him three sets and he didn't play well he was pissed he just walked off the court and didn't do the interview <laughs> so you start to understand why players and, and you know it's their livelihood when they're when they have a bad day at the office everybody knows so uh, it's definitely something yeah. to, to understand there well Nina Pantic this was uh, this was great before I let you go associate editor at tennis magazine I just want to talk a little bit about the current state of tennis Indian Wells this weekend, the unofficial fifth major, the the big tournament here at Palm Springs in California, which you're covering, which you're at right now. What are some of your favorite, I guess, storylines going into this tournament? We have the the returns of Serena Williams and Victoria Azarenka, the men's game with Federer back on top again, Djokovic back in the tournament as kind of a surprise entrant. What are some of your favorite storylines going into this edition of Indian Wells? Yeah, the comebacks are the biggest storylines, hands down. Azarenka and Sterina both won their first matches, and it's just it's just so nice to see them back, and the fans were so excited, which is which is unbelievable to see. As for Novak, it, it's also good to see him back, but it's a little bit different. I think his story is a bit harder. While they, you know, they're kind of doing this, these amazing, one of these amazing things coming back from having kids and, and the custody battle, and, you know, Novak is just, you kind of don't know what's going on with him, so it's a bit different with him, but... Storylines, everything up better is automatic. And he's just living a dream. There's no, there's no doubt. Even if he lost, I think, in the quarterfinal, there's no one. I mean, he's thriving. It's crazy. I mean, we're roughly the same age, and he won his first Grand Slam when we were in middle school. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, it's just, it, it's insane that he's still doing it, and he's won two Grand Slams in the last, you know, 15 months. It's not just being near him. People's energy is so different. It's just a buzz when I read I know he's just like a normal guy, but it doesn't feel that way when you're when you're near him. It feels like he's kind of a, a god or a saint or something. It, it, it's just get people react to him. No, he's but a I'm also excited to see some of the younger players. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's some young players that could that could give him a run for his money. And there's a lot of young Americans and both draws and a lot of young players and like you know someone like Dimitrov who has a fair shot as well. Dimitrov is very frustrating because I, I'm a fan. I think he's got the game to break through, but for whatever reason, it hasn't happened at a consistent level. Um, the story that I was going to ask you about that's fascinating, and maybe it's just me being a tennis nerd, but what's going on with Zverev, how he's struggled recently, especially at majors, and that story with breaking up with his former coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero, that, that's just fascinating to me because you don't see a lot of public player coach feuds aired out in the public like that. Yeah, I thought that was a bit I mean, but I mean he's twenty years old, you kinda of forget that. He um he talked about it in his press, his media day all access hour. He the accusation was something like, Oh, he was late to practice and Zara was pretty adamant. He's like, I'm never late to practice, that's not true, you know, I'm late to dinner, I'm late to you know, maybe I'm late to the car, but I'm never late to practice. And and that was kind of not awkward. I mean, everyone has their problems. And coach players, they change so much. It's hard to even... There's only a handful of people that have the same coach their whole career, if, if at all. Yeah. So the swapping is... is I, I mean, it, so the swapping happens. Well, the series happen all the time. I don't know. I think there's a whole handful of people who've had arguments and things. And so he'll end up going back, you know. 
Yeah, I also think that Ferrero is an interesting He's not the traditional coach. He doesn't need to coach. He was the former world number one Grand Slam champion, and he doesn't need you know, to play neutral to get other clients. He's going to clap back, so to speak. Yeah, he'll, he'll be in demand. But I think Zverev is also in a similar position. He's, he's clearly got a lot of potential here. So I, I think both of them, I mean, it's hard to really know. I mean, they're talking about it a little bit, but it's, it's, everything's pretty private, and that it's, it's something that happens between them and happens between player and coaches much every day. Well, I think the bigger story, too, there, in a broader sense, is that I, lo- I love Roger Federer, Nadal, what they've done for the sport, Serena Williams, obviously, but we want to see those young players break through. They're not, these, these legends of tennis aren't going to be around forever, and we need to see some young blood pumped in and winning at a high level, and, and that's the frustrating part for both the men's and the women's games, is it hasn't really happened yet. Yeah, it's a bit unusual, and it's a bit you kind of wonder what's going to happen when Serena and Federer really do stop playing. Like, who is going to be in charge? And it's hard to tell. But I feel like this, you know, these young players, they're the one couple Masters titles. I mean, he's he's proved capable. It's just the Grand Slams he needs to figure out the best of five set situation he needs to get going. But it's it's kind of I think once they actually do step down, things will be so different. So maybe maybe it's just a matter of time. If I had to ask you right now. Does Serena Williams win multiple majors before she retires? I say yes. Okay. I, I'm i torn on that one because as legendary as she is, you know, she'll be 35 this year, 36. It's uh, it's 30, tough. Uh, it's tough to win at that yeah. age in any sport. Yeah, but she's just not, you know, kind of like better. They're at a different level. There's something, there's something else at work here. It's not... The age doesn't seem to matter. I think when they hit 40, we can talk. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be a safe bet. Although I don't know what, what athletes now are doing at 40, you have to wonder. Uh, I think mentally, too. I think that's that's where you see those guys those guys and girls strive, is that when it's the fifth set of the Australian Open, the third set at Wimbledon for Serena, she's just been there before. She knows what to do, and she's not going to wilt under pressure. And you hear former pros, former dominant pros, like I think it was Macro say, like they just expect to win in those situations. Yeah, and you expect them to win. You expect them to raise the level at the exact moment where they're supposed to. And you know, it's something that they do over and over again. I, I think I think Serena will have a good, I'd say, year or two in her at least. I hope so, and I hope we see. A couple more wins, Serena and Venus again at Indian Wells, because that would be pretty wild in 2018. That would be wild. So, Nina Pandic, this was a great interview. Thanks for coming on. What's next for, for your career going forward? What are some of the things you're working on and uh, trying to do professionally? Yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of going to tournaments and, and traveling and, you know, getting as much, I guess, uh, stories out there and actually trying to do a bit more video work versus just as much as I love writing and, and news and print and websites, I think it's a bit more of a, a video work. And now that Tennis Channel is involved, it, it's a lot more opportunity for that kind of stuff. It's a lot of fun. Very different, but a lot of fun. Well, it's always fun to try different things. I think your career is a testament to what happens when you do try things and, and put yourself out there. But it's it's an interesting time for, for media in general. A lot more video, a lot of uh, a social media presence as well. And, uh, you know, I know that everybody's, you know, pumped to be kind of under the same branch, Tennis Channel, Tennis.com, Baseline as well. So we're all excited to uh, to see what's in store. But uh, first things first, have, uh, have a good time at Indian Wells. And uh, it's not as hot as in years past, so 
you won't have to worry about being stuck out in the sun too much. No, it's perfect out here. Absolutely perfect. Thank you again for uh, for coming on the show. Good luck with everything. And uh, until next time, we'll definitely be in touch. Best of luck with everything, Nina Pantic. Thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Great. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. Big, big thanks to Nina Pantic for appearing as today's guest. If you have a chance, please follow what she does at Tennis Magazine and at Baseline. She's a great writer, great reporter, and uh, a great tennis professional. Wish her nothing but the best going forward. You'll definitely be hearing her name in the future. That I can assure you. If you like this episode, you can find all the episodes of The Money Mitch Effect on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect. It pops right up. You can write a review, share the episode, subscribe there. I'm at Twitter, Money Mitch M21. It's a big sports weekend. If you like college basketball, big conference tournaments, March Madness bracket will be announced on Sunday. A lot of hockey and pro basketball going on. And, of course, Indian Wells will be down there for a few days myself. The meat of the tournament starting, and it will culminate with finals a week from Sunday. You're not going to want to miss that. It's a great time of year for all sports. Make sure you're tuned in. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks again to Nita Pantic for appearing on today's show. Until next time, keep enjoying sports. <laughs>